You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. We're actually in part three of Built to Last, part three of Built to Last. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, Matthew 16, and we're going to put that on the screen, Matthew 16. Uh, And here's what it says, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied to him, "You, Simon, son of Jonah, uh, you're blessed. Blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Through this series, we've been looking at the purpose of the church, the calling of the church, our place and, and, and call from God to be the church. The church is not just a place we gather on Sunday mornings. It's not just a building with a steeple and a cross, but it's a people called out. In fact, the word church that Jesus uses in the, the language of the New Testament is a word ekklesia in the Greek. It's a word that means to call out to call together to assemble. So first it starts with the fact that you and I are called. We are called by God, called out of something. We're called out of sin, out of shame, out of our past, out of brokenness, out of of what's held us captive. And we're called into a new kingdom. We're called into a new family. We're called into a new house. We were born in the house of slavery bound to sin and we're set free and brought into the house of our God who adopts us and makes us a part of the family. And when, when Jesus asked this question, he's at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's in the land of Israel, and it's a place that uh, was really a metropolitan center at that time. But it was also a place that was heavily influenced by spiritual, moral darkness. It was a place that was a center of worship, of idolatry, uh, it, was, it was a major center for the worship of the Greek god Pan. Even going back to the early Israel kingdoms, it was a place where Baal was worshipped in the high places, in the mountains. And so when Jesus brings his disciples there, he's not bringing them to Sunday school. He's bringing them to one of the darkest spiritual environments, one of the darkest places. There were all kinds of depravity. There were things where, where people in the worship of these false gods, of these idols, they would literally throw their children. They would bring babies and throw them into the mouth of the cave and abandon them there and sacrifice their own children to worship these idols, worship these gods to get favor for the year. They would do horrendous things. There was all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of things that accompanied the worship of these gods and that place was an epicenter for it. And Jesus takes them to this city, Caesarea Philippi, because Jesus never ran from the dark. He always faced it. And Jesus brings his disciples to a dark environment and here's where he has this conversation. Who do people say that I am? And it turns into this conversation that I just read to you and Uh, If I could just read the rest of this, it says, on this rock I will build my church. 
The first week in this series, we talked about foundations, how the foundation of the solid rock of who Jesus is establishes something in our life, our family, our faith, our relationships, our marriages that is built to last. Uh, Last week, we talked about being that assembly, the church called out, called together. Why we assemble? We assemble to meet with God. We assemble to grow together, and we assemble to make a difference in the world. Today, the the message, if you're taking notes, is we're on the winning team. We're on the winning team. Watch what happens next. He says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. If you could put that, uh, while I'm reading this, if you could put that picture on the screen of the cave. Uh, Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What I want you to focus in on is the end of verse 18. The gates of Hades will not prevail. We kind of had to shrink it it down so it wasn't totally stretched. Uh, Go to the other picture as well, if you could pull that up. So this sheer rock face is where it's believed that Jesus is having this conversation as he's describing a rock, the solid rock, the rock of the revelation of who he is. He's having a conversation, but he's also teaching with an image. How many of us, like, like we can hear information, but many of us are visual learners. We learn by what we see. We learn by what we experience. If you just tell me how to do a job, I can get that information, but if you actually show me how to do it, I'll learn it a lot quicker. Are you with me? And Jesus takes them to this place, this cave here. Go back to the other picture. This is one of the sources at that time of the Jordan River. And yet, at the mouth of this cave, this was known to many of those cultures as the gates of Hades, or in Greek, Hades was the underworld. And so it was the place where these gods that they sacrificed to, that they worshiped, that they literally gave their everything, their best to, they, they believed that this was the entry point to the underworld, that this was the entry point, this was the house, this was the gate of hell itself, the gates of Hades, and yet it was this very place that represented spiritual darkness that Jesus said, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against my church, my people. If you didn't know this, the day you said yes to Jesus, the day you surrendered to him, you became a part of the family of God. You became a part of the household of God. You are the church. And the church is meant to, called to, and inevitably will overcome even the darkest environment, the darkest opposition, the darkest threats and strategies of hell. My, my, uh, my dad was a fan when I was growing up, and still is, he's, he was always a fan of underdog football teams. And so, so he was always a fan of a team that uh, was, was rarely winning. When we spent time in Arizona, uh, the Cardinals were his fan, his, his team he was a fan of. And uh, I remember seeing bandwagon fans. Like, like some of you have been Viking fans. Okay, anyway, I, I won't go there. Um, I'll pick on the Bears and say, okay. Uh, <laughs> bandwagon fans are fans when your team gets to the Super Bowl. It was funny when the Cardinals made it to the Super Bowl, Kurt Warner was a quarterback, did an awesome job leading the team there, and yet there were Cardinal fans coming out of the woodwork because it was popular to be on the winning team. But what happened when they weren't winning, <laughs> when they weren't doing so well, when it wasn't as popular? Well, you didn't see a lot of Cardinal stickers on cars. 
He didn't see a lot of flags. Now, some of us are raised with the team culture. We're raised to be fans of a certain team, and, and we celebrate that. But I think everybody, we're innately created and designed to like a winning team. It's just true. But I just want to remind you, church, that as a part of the people of God, you're on the winning team. That, that we look at the news. We look at the horrible things happening around the world. We're looking at all the devastation. We're looking at just even what, listen, it's very personal. I talk every week with people who are going through the their own personal hell, that are walking through difficulty, that it seems like uh, this, this very dark pit is, is overcoming them, and yet we have a Jesus who said, be of good cheer, I've already overcome the world. You are born again to win. You are born to be an overcomer. Many, I, 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 and I understand if right now you feel afraid of what's happening in the world, but I'm here to remind you, church, that Jesus has already won, and he is coming back in victory. He is coming back in triumph, and he has called his church to be an overcoming church. In every generation, in every environment, he doesn't run from the dark. He confronts it, faces it, and even sends you and I into it. In the Old Testament, there's a picture of what happens. Israel, at that time, were slaves. Slaves in Egypt. Egypt being a picture of what we have in the world, bound by sin before Jesus. And they're slaves for 430 years. That's longer than the United States has been a nation. That's all they've known for generations. God sends Moses, confronts Pharaoh, confronts bringing what, what Exodus calls the 10 plagues of Egypt, describes the 10 plagues, each one of them a confrontation with a God that the Egyptians would worship. They worship the Nile, God says, I'll turn that Nile River into blood. They worship the sun, God blacks out the sun, showing he's greater than any idol that man worships, he's greater than any authority, every principality, any power, anything the world has to give. And in the midst of those 10 plagues, there's, there's something that happens right in the middle of it. God says this, in Exodus, uh, this is chapter eight, verse 22. In that day, God says, I'm gonna set apart the land of Goshen. Goshen is where the Israelites, as slaves, had their homes. And he says, it's in which my people dwell that no swarm of flies will be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. And I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will be when God blotted out the sun in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 22. It says, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did any rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel, listen to this, had light in their dwellings. God established a contrast he established a place and a people that in the midst of dark, there was light. In the midst of, 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 of tremendous change, there was hope. God sheltered his people, covered his people, and made a, here's why, he made a difference as a witness. He said, look what I'm gonna do with my people. So that he would let them know. And he's done that throughout Israel's history. And he wants to do that in your life and mine. When the world is afraid, God wants to raise up a fearless church. When the world is without hope, he wants to raise up a hope-filled church. Isaiah 59, 19 says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun from the east. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, Pastor, it's so bad out there. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of issues 
And the, the reality is those issues have already been present, have always been present, and there's going to be an increase, increasing amount of many of these issues, and yet many times we kind of ignore them, we hit the spiritual snooze button, and we go, well, just go away, I want to go back to normal. And here's what God does in the midst of the enemy coming in like a flood. And by the way, he does the same thing in your marriage. He does the same thing in your faith. He does the same thing for your kids that are far from God. He does the same thing when addiction comes in and tries to take you out. He does the same when fear and shame try to destroy your life. Where the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard. You know what that is? It's like raising a flag of battle, of raising a flag of, of going to war. God says, I'm gonna fight this enemy that has overwhelmed you like a flood. And the Spirit of the Lord will raise the standard against him. The very next chapter, God tells his people, here's what you're supposed to do. Very next chapter, Isaiah 60, arise and shine. For your light has come, the glory of the Lord will be risen upon you, Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The Lord will arise over you. Oh, church, if you just catch that. And his glory will be seen over you. Do you have to be afraid at what's happening in the world? No. Do you have to be afraid of what the enemy's trying to do in your life and your generation? No. Why? Because the Lord will arise over you. That's the promise. And he said to Israel in verse three, the Gentiles even, those far from God, outside of the covenant, will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Here's where light belongs. It belongs at the, at the, the cave. It belongs at the mountain where, where there's been darkness. It belongs in the darkest places of our life. God says, I wanna show up there. Why are you and your family? Nobody in here has ever asked that. Second service people will. Why am I in this family? Why am I in this environment? Why am I at this job? Why am I at this place? Maybe, just maybe, God said, arise and shine. You don't know what I'm going through. Well, here's the way faith works. Faith doesn't just arise and shine when we feel it or when everything is good. What's the contrast? Do you know God created you and I for contrast? I, I like to go to the movies. Anybody else like movies besides me? Okay. So, so three of us, the rest of us pretend like we're more spiritual than that. I never watch any movies. What are you talking about, Pastor? I don't watch any movies. Um, but but, but here's, here's what happens when you go to a movie theater. The lights get dark so you can see the contrast of what's on the screen. You can see it more clearly. And when the world gets darker, it's an opportunity for God to display his glory, his light in Goshen, in his people, in his church, in his bride. He displays light where there's been darkness. Can I tell you that, that, that right now, there are actually, if it hasn't reached this point, I don't know what the latest population numbers are. I know we're, I think, believe we've passed 7 billion. But we're, we're at the point where more people are alive today than all of human history combined. There are, on average, people who study this say, on average, over a million people every week are coming to Jesus across the world. Places like China and Iran where persecution has come to the church and largely banned and outlawed what we're doing right now are the two fastest growing places for the church in the entire world. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Do you know what those nations need? Is Jesus. Do you know what our nation needs? It's Jesus. Do you know what my family, your family, do you know what we need more than anything else is Jesus. 
I, I, I thought this was interesting. Just based on statistics, based on what we would estimate is the number of people who've come to Christ since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. There are more people today coming to Jesus than even are in the population of what's probably in heaven right now. That's amazing. And God puts you here right now. God put you in this time. God put you at this moment in history. God placed you here, called you, created you, assigned you, gifted you, as we're going to talk about it next steps, like God's placed something on the inside of you. Why? Jesus pointed to it. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail. What does it mean to prevail? It means to be strong to another's detriment. To be strong at the expense of another. And he says you're going to prevail over the gates of hell. I know sometimes we have this weird picture. I, did, I used to at least. We have this picture that the gates of hell are somehow offensive. But you know gates are designed to keep out and keep in. Gates are defensive. When, when he's talking about this, he's not, think, he's not just talking about, well, hell's going after. The devil's out to get me today. <laughs> no, no, he's saying the church should be on offense. Not defense, not, not on the run. Not afraid of what the enemy's doing. Do you know the culture is never meant to set the tone in the world, but the church is? And I believe a decline in our culture actually is first a reflection of the decline of the church. You know why I believe that? Here's what 1 Timothy 3 says, verses 14 and 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's house which is the church of the living God. And here's how he describes the church. It's the pillar and the ground, the foundation of the truth. Where is it a pillar? Well, when God places his church in a community, in a nation, in a people, in a generation, it's meant to, it's called to, it's designed by God to establish something solid. Even those that don't yet know God benefit from that stability of what the truth of God brings to a society and a culture. But when the church first allows the dark in, then here's what happens. It begins to ripple effect everywhere else. Or here's what we also do, and I think this is even more common, we hide from the dark instead of turn the light on. You were sent, called, chosen for just such a time as this to bring hope to a hopeless world, to bring faith to a, fear, to a fear-filled world. And the promise is that the darkest strongholds of hell cannot, will not overcome the church. So if we could put this picture up um, of, of my dog, um, he, he's gonna be useful for this purpose today. Um, if we could put that picture up. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, so, so I didn't warn my wife that I was going to do this. I'm going to pick on him just for a moment. Uh, so I had a better video, but it was a video I did not get approved by my wife first. I've learned to be a good husband. Uh, but, but this picture is, so my dog, if you can't tell from this picture, he's not just lost, he's stuck. And the reason he's stuck is there's this little threshold there uh, going into the kitchen. And this threshold is for whatever reason, my dog is terrified to cross it. He literally will walk slowly, step <laughs> by step, his legs shaking. He is terrified of the handrail. He's terrified of the cabinets. I, I, I don't know. My dog's broken. Please pray for me. <laughs> you, you can pull that down. Uh, 
But, but here, here's what I've, I've, I've learned is that many people don't know who they are in Christ. And as a result of that, they're afraid of things they're called to overcome. So, so this dog, you can, you can pull that down. That's enough of the dog. <laughs> he is afraid of something that has never harmed him, nor ever will harm him. <laughs> it's immovable. And yet, the church many times is afraid more of what the enemy's doing, what the dark is doing, than we are recognizing what God's going to do. I, I love this quote because of what happens after this. There's a man named Voltaire. He was a renowned philosopher, atheist, vehemently hated the church. And some of that came out of just horrible experiences with religion. And unfortunately, religion many times has misrepresented Jesus, misrepresented God to the world. And, and Voltaire said this, a hundred years from now, and he actually was speaking in the early, late 1700s, early 1800s, if I remember right, around the French Revolution. 100 years from my day, he said, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In other words, nobody's gonna have one of these. Nobody's even gonna wanna read one of these. Nobody's even gonna look at one of these. You know what I love about this story? Is within 45 years, this man who was one of the most vehement opponents of the church said, oh, nobody's even gonna open a Bible. 45 years later, his house was used by the Geneva Bible Society to print gospel tracts, to send the word of God throughout France and throughout Europe and the rest of the world because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's when God turns things upside down. Do you know the only way the enemy can win, I believe, is to divide the team? Uh, around the turn of the century in the 1900s, going into uh, the early 1900s, there was a church that uh, had no AC inside. And because they had no AC, they had to figure out whenever they would set out communion on the table to prepare for the worship service, uh, flies would come in and flies would set on, the, on the, the bread of the communion table. And so they started covering com the communion with the doily. One of the ladies in the church made a doily and covered the communion and, and so that the flies would would stop landing on it, and they could just enjoy communion. But then a couple decades go by, and they get AC in the church. Thank you, Jesus. And they put AC in the church, and you know what they kept doing? They kept covering the communion with a doily. Until one day, somebody actually asked themselves, why do we still cover the communion with the doily? And they decided, let's stop covering the communion with a doily. And they took away the doily. Do you know that it actually started a fight in the church and the church split? And there was a doily crowd and there was a non-doily crowd. And there was a crew that said, we've always had a doily on communion. That's what you're supposed to do. And they said that not because there was a Bible verse, but because that was what they were used to, not even remembering why they had to cover it in the first place. How many fights are we fighting that we're not called to fight? And they're actually keeping us from the one we're born for. He tries to, the enemy tries to divide the team. He tries to fight the team. You know what the church is to do? We need to identify because I know that this was a picture, this gate of hell in, in, in Caesarea Philippi, but there are gates of hell in our family, in our city. They're access points. 
where the enemy is bringing all kinds of crud into our life, our community, our city. You know what the church is called to do? Find out what they are and go after it. I've, I've gone, I've, I've lived in several different places and in every place I've lived, you can tell that there's different gates in those cities. And you go into a place and you find out that there's certain things that are holding people captive on a greater level than you see in other places. And there are gates of hell in North Iowa. And you know who's called to overcome those? You are, the church. But I can't overcome those when I'm being overcome by that same issue myself. And so I start, we start with getting free in Jesus ourselves. But then we are called to recognize and rip those gates of hell off their hinges. That's what the church is to do, is to be. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. Matthew 24, if we could turn there. Matthew 24. I didn't forget to give you points. I'm going to give you those in a moment. Some of you are like, we haven't had church if we haven't had points. (laughs) That may be your doily. Okay. (laughs) So, in Matthew 24, Jesus is walking Again, showing a picture, he takes him by the temple in Jerusalem. He says, hey, every, every stone of this temple is going to be torn down, destroyed. And the disciples who are there are so shocked by what he said. They say, when is this going to be? Like, when is this going to happen? And when's going to be the end of the age? Like, that's got to be the end of the world if the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And so Jesus describes that and when that would take place. And he actually predicted it with incredible accuracy. Uh, but also begins to point to and, and prophesy to. Do you know the Bible has 2,000 prophecies that have been fulfilled and another 500 that are still yet to be fulfilled? So those 2,000 prophecies let us know what he will do. There's two major events in the Bible that are the major of all of human history. These are the two major events that everything else surrounds. The first is the first coming of Jesus and the second that's spoken of as much, if not more, is the second coming of Jesus. And those two major events define everything for us. And, and, and he gives a lot there. He describes the signs of the times, the, the signs of war and deception and all these different things that take place. And, and, and Luke would say like this. He says, don't get discouraged when you see that happen. Look up and know your redemption draws near. Like, like the crazier things get, it's just what the Bible would say are like, Jesus uses this picture of birth pain. So, so my wife d- delivered three children. Uh, she's my hero. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and my job was to show up with a washcloth and try to, you know, help her breathe, you know. And, and the closer we got to the babies being born, the contractions that preceded and prepared her for delivery would get more intense and get closer together until the birth of our children. And it's the same thing with what happens throughout human history. There's always been wars. There's always been deception. There's always been the things that Jesus describes, but there's an increase and a regular uh, intensity as things get closer to the very end. But here's what I want you to see, verse 36. Uh, Jesus said, about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, uh, nor the son, but only the father. So if you see a billboard that says, Jesus is coming back October 31st of this year, it's not true. Now, can Jesus come back on it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but no man knows the day or the hour. So, so we, we get, uh, you know, it's kind of like the church sometimes becomes like the boy who cried wolf and points to a lot of things and ends up, it, it becomes a clanging symbol to the world that's far from God. 
And so we need to recognize what Jesus said about it. But here's what he says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day the Noah entered the ark. Uh, and they knew, that no, they knew nothing about what was about to happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. I want to talk about the days of Noah for just a moment because I believe they illustrate not only what Jesus described as the end, but how God used Noah is how I believe God wants to use the church. And, and the church is not just an organization, it's an organism. It's not just a, it, it's not just a people, it's a body. It's a, we're connected to Jesus, the head. And we have a purpose on planet earth. You have a calling on planet earth. You have an assignment from God. You have a purpose from God. And God calls Noah, not when it's easy, God calls Noah when it's difficult. In fact, if I could just read this quickly, Genesis 6, and then I'll give you the points, I promise. Before anybody gets upset about the doily. Okay, then the Lord saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. Didn't even have a good thought. Didn't even have all they could think about, all they were preoccupied with was evil and destruction. Can I just tell you what motivates a terrorist group to kill children? It's evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling that there's still people today that somehow try to explain and justify and rationalize. That's what happens when our mindsets get warped by, by, by the way the world operates instead of what's true. Instead of what God says. There is good and evil in the world. Can I just tell you? <laughs> there is good and evil in the world. Sin has real effects. And ultimately, when sin runs its course, it's in every form destructive. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. His heart's broken. He's grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man who I've made from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah, listen to that, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just, a righteous man, in his gener perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. We'll go back to that in a second. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. It's interesting, that word violence in Hebrew is, it's, it's the Hebrew word Hamas. And, and there's violence in the earth. When, when sin was allowed to reign unchallenged, it corrupted an entire generation, and all that God could find was one guy, <laughs> Noah. So, so, well, I'm the only one in my family. That's an opportunity, not a problem. I'm the only Christian on my co- Do you realize the dirty jokes they tell? It's an opportunity, not a problem. Oh, if we would just see what's in front of us as an opportunity to be a light in the midst of darkness, to, be, to bring hope and, 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 and purpose. And, and here's what God does. God comes to Noah and he says in verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'm gonna destroy them all on the earth. Make yourself an ark. Make yourself an ark. Do you know the ark is not a petting zoo? <laughs> it's a rescue boat. Do you know what the church is called to be in a generation? We're called to bring rescue to those that are lost. And the first one who needs rescue is us. It's us. It says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. 
covered inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. So, so let's talk about this real quick. Uh, the first thing we need to do, number one, is we need to receive God's grace. We need to find God's grace. So what does it say? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Some translations say he found favor. Noah found favor with God. Do you know what grace is? Grace is two things. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. I didn't deserve it. How many of us came to church for the first time and we felt like, and maybe this is where you feel like right now, like I, I, I don't know if God really loves me because of what I've done. I'm not perfect. It says Noah's perfect. I'm not perfect. You know that when it says Noah's perfect, it doesn't say he's without sin. The only one without sin was Jesus. But he stood out as a light in the midst of a generation. But you know what? Every one of us needed grace. Every one of us needs grace. When our life is falling apart and when everything seems to be working together, either way, we need God just as much. We need God on our best days. We need God on our worst days. And what I love about God's grace is it is unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and he freely gives it to us in Christ Jesus. And when we give our life to Jesus, he takes our sin, our shame, our past, our history, what's held us captive, and he buries it. And he raises us to life. What we sing about today is not just God taking impossible things and raising them to life. It's what he does in every single person that says yes to Jesus. Do you know what a miracle it was for you even to not just be in the room, but to respond to the good news of Jesus? To be brought from darkness into light. All of hell had been working since your earliest days to keep you from that moment. And yet, he could not stop what God started. We need to find God's grace. Do you know what grace also does? Grace empowers us to do what we're called to do. Every one of us, if you're part of the church, you're called. And I'm not talking about like, I joined the church, I went to a membership class. We, we don't do a formal membership class. We encourage people to come to Next Steps. Here's what we say, if you show up twice, you're a member. <laughs> Surprise, no, uh, anyway. Um, but, but here's what happens. Grace empowers us to do what we're called to do because every call has a command. I like it when I, he- I find out I'm special to God. Like we all like that. You are special. You matter to God. That, that's important. But then I, I discovered one day that me being special, you being special, meant there was also a command. God found favor or gave favor to Noah and then he commanded. He said, Here, here's what I want you to do. Make an ark. God showed him a blueprint, gave him a plan, said, here's how you're gonna do it, here's the dimensions, here's the, all of the things that, that Noah needed, but God would not cut the trees down. Noah had to do it. God would not hold out the tape measure. Noah had to do it. God wouldn't hold the hammer. Noah had to do it. With every call, there comes a command. First, we start with the fact that we receive grace from God. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. But then God's grace empowers us. God designs, but we have to build something. Number two, if you're taking notes, we're almost done. Number two is this. We can flood-proof our life. Ryan, do you know what's happening in my life? Well, I may not know what's happening, but here's what I do know. All of us experience floods. All of us experience battles. All of us have shaking. All of us have moments where we don't know if we're gonna make it, if our marriage is gonna make it, if our future will will be secure. We don't know. Here's what he does. He builds an ark. He goes and God says, build it with gopher wood. And I want you to do two things. Cover it and put pitch everywhere. 
And, and I know this is getting really in the weeds, but I love how everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament foreshadows something in the New. So, so that word in Hebrew to cover is the same Hebrew word used elsewhere of atonement. And he uses pitch. The word for pitch also in other places means ransom. So here's what he tells Noah. I want you to cover it with pitch, but it's a picture. What's gonna seal the ark is prophetic about what seals you and I, and it's the atoning work of Jesus. What's the atonement? It's the blood of Christ that 2,000 years ago Jesus shed. You wanna floodproof your life against what's coming or what's happening now? You need Jesus in your life. It is not the time for the church to be disconnected. It's a time for us to build an ark. It's a time for us to say, I'm gonna build my family on the things of God. I'm gonna raise my kids in the things of God. I'm gonna build my marriage on God's word. But Jesus at the center. I'm gonna build my life on something that's unshakable. And when the storm came, the rain didn't destroy the ark, it raised it. Oh, church. <laughs> God had Noah build this because his family needed it. If we don't build, our families won't float. If we don't build, our cities won't. Our nations won't. There's hope. Can I just tell you, there's actually a reason told to us in the Bible of why Jesus is waiting. It's in 2 Peter 3. It tells us, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is he holding back the flood of what's coming in human history? Why is he, why is he waiting? Because when the author shows up, C.S. Lewis said this, when the author shows up, the play's over. But he's put his church, his people, you and me, to keep reaching and keep turning the light on and keep blessing others in the name of Jesus, keep sharing the gospel, the good news. Do you know uh, Noah was called a preacher of righteousness in Second Peter? Jason, if you wanna come up. He was called a preacher of righteousness. So Noah's job is to build and, and, and he's there building the ark, but you know what he's also doing? He's preaching a sermon with his life. He's building an ark at a time where no one had seen a flood like what God had promised. And every time he's building this ark, in fact, his ark building lasts 120 years. And for 120 years, Noah, every day, has a promise from God. If you build this ark, I'm gonna preserve you. And so he's cutting trees down, no flood. He's putting the planks that he's shaped and cut and, and, and he nailed together. He's putting all that together, building the frame and the outer parts and he's making the rooms and he's covering with pitch. He's doing all the things that God said to do and all the while, nothing looks like what God told him is coming. Nothing. And, it, and I'm sure early on, people were mocking, saying, oh, you're just one of those crazy Christians. No, no. They, <laughs> anybody ever hear that? You're just one of those. Like you show up to a Friday night, men's night and Sunday, like for real? <laughs> Do you know why? You're building an ark. <laughs> At the end of the day, I don't care what other people's opinion of me is. What matters is, will it float? <laughs> well, what I've given my span of my life, Noah had 120 years to build the ark before the flood came. You have a window of time. I know we asked the question, and it's a good question. Is it the last days? I believe we are obviously closer than we ever were before. I believe we may be in the last days, certainly, with a lot of the things the Bible has to say, but here's what I know for certain. They're my last days, and they're your last days. 
and you and I have a window of life that God has given us to build. What has God called you to build? What is the blueprint he's given you? What is the plan and the purpose? How did Noah find it? He walked with God. And he built, even when he was criticized. You know what I also know? I know for a fact people were threatening. If every thought was evil continually and the earth was filled with violence, don't you think there were some death threats on Noah? What do you think it was like for his kids growing up and his dad's the guy who's building the ark? Look at all of the price that they had to pay. Do you know what that tells me? There had to be courage in building. Here's what the third and final point is, if you put that on the screen. There is something that God has called us to. It's a courage to overcome. It's a courage to prevail in the midst of adversity. And you and I can build courageously, even in uncertain times. We can build courageously. David had courage when he faced Goliath. Now we celebrate that. It was a battle. Um, Gideon had courage with the 300 when they faced down the Midianites. There's great battles throughout biblical history. We go, that person had courage. They had a sword in their hand. They fought. Do you know what Noah had? He had a tape measure and a hammer. And it was no less important. Don't think that your calling is less significant because it doesn't look like somebody else's. Do you know what set Noah apart? And do you know what saved every generation after? He had a quiet courage to say, I'm gonna do what God has called me to do, what he's commanded me to do, what he's placed in front of me. Come hell or high water. I'm standing for God, and I'm going to witness to generation. I'm gonna be a light in the midst of darkness. I'm not gonna run from the dark. I'm gonna keep, he's a preacher of righteousness. And it doesn't say he preached a single sermon, but he kept building. And they're, Noah, what, what are you doing? God told me to build this, there's a flood coming. <laughs> and we're to get ready. And I know he built that ark and there was the animals, all of that. But here's, here's what I also know. There were a lot of rooms, but only Noah's family responded. We need to make lots of room for people. Regardless of their response, regardless of their decisions, we're going to keep reaching, keep loving, keep going after and tearing down the gates of hell. We're gonna keep building. We're gonna keep loving people that may not love back. That's okay. You can do what God's called you to do. And here's the promise, you're on the winning team gates of hell will not prevail against this. One last verse, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, was moved with godly fear. His courage came. Godly fear is reverence for God, not being afraid, but, but reverencing God. But here's what courage looks like. I'm gonna believe when I don't see. I'm gonna build when I don't understand. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say yes to God. I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna keep building. Would you stand to your feet? There's hope for you, for your family. And that hope isn't a feeling, it's not something ill-defined. Hope is a person, his name is Jesus. 
And if you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, religion doesn't save anybody, but Jesus saves anyone who comes to him. Anyone. Doesn't matter what your history looks like, doesn't matter your past, your decisions, your failures, what others have done and said about you. What matters is the invitation. God wants you in his family. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.